Welcome to Alco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Alco Farm, ETSU's Bill Gadden College of Pharmacy. It is a, a spooky October 27th, um, 2022. Uh, we got two new uh, drugs uh, to talk about, uh, so let's get right into it. Uh, the first T drug to talk about is tremolimumab, brand name Imjudo. Imjudo. Uh, Tremolimumab, uh, FDA approved on October 21st uh, in combination, sort of in combination, in combination with Dervalumab for unresectable hepatocellular carcinoma, HCC. This is the Himalaya study that got its approval. Now, Tremolimumab is a CTLA-4 blocking monoclonal antibody. This is the same drug class as Ipilimumab. And this is um, interesting that ipilimumab was our first immune checkpoint inhibitor we had approved as a CTLA-4 inhibitor. And then we got a slew of PD-1 and some PD-L1 blocking drugs, but not another CTLA-4 blocking drug until now with tremolimumab. Now that doesn't mean that tremolimumab has not been around and trying. It's kind of the, the, the little drug that could. So if you go back and you PubMed tremolimumab uh, and you limit this to like phase three clinical trials, you'll see like eight that are out there. Um, some of these, there are some duplicate publications of like, here's the design of the study, here are the results of the study, but there was a phase three study in melanoma in 2013 with trevolumab, wasn't approved for melanoma. There were two uh, non-small cell lung cancer studies of different designs in 2016. There's no approval for lung cancer. Uh, in 2019, there, were, uh, there was a study in limited stage small cell lung cancer and extensive stage small cell lung cancer, no trimolimab approval. Uh, 2020 head neck cancer, 2020 urothelial carcinoma, and in 2021 renal cell carcinoma. So this is a drug that has been tried in lots and lots of disease states and not shown to have any advantage over current standards of care or standards of care at the time. Uh, now, why that is, uh, maybe it's not as great of a drug as uh, ipilimumab. Perhaps uh, the dosing is wrong, and there's something interesting in the PI here um, in the pharmacodynamic section in, in section 12, quote, the exposure response relationship and time course of pharmacodynamic response for safety and effectiveness of tremolimab has not been fully established, so we don't really know the best, how much drug needs to be in the body to have the best balance of safety and efficacy. Um, so um, anyway, we got tremolimab approved. Kind of an interesting approval, which, which I'll talk about. So uh, current landscape for treating unresectable uh, hepatocellular carcinoma. First line is uh, established now as atizolizumab and bevacizumab. Atizolizumab and atizo. Atizo and bev. Atizolizumab and uh, bevacizumab. Uh, which were uh, shown to be better than serafinib, which was the historic standard of care based on the SHARP trial. Second-line options include regorafinib, cabozantinib, uh, remucirumab, if your alpha-feta protein is above 400. And then there is a combination of nivolumab and ipilimumab that has an accelerated approval in the second-line setting. Now, that dose of ipi uh, of the CTLA-4 is the kind of the original dose, three mix per kg every three weeks. Uh, with a lower dose of nivolumab, one mg per kg. Kind of the opposite of what you see in a lot of the ipilimumab combination studies. With nivolumab, where you maximize the nivolumab dose, and not only do you give a lower dose of ipilimumab, but you give it, say, every six weeks instead of every three weeks. All right? Now, this approval is one dose 
of Dervalumab, 300 milligrams times one. If you're less than 30 milligrams, it's a lower dose. It's a weight-based dose, but it's an approval on adults. Most of these folks are gonna be 30 kilos and above. So 300 milligrams times one plus standard Dervalumab, 1500 milligrams every 28, week, every 28 days. And so you get the Tremolimumab on day one, Dervalumab on day one, and then on day 29, when the cycle begins again, cycle two, it's just Dervalumab from thereafter. So it's one dose of Tremolimumab, okay? So this brings us to, there was a phase two study uh, that actually looked at uh, Tremolimumab 75 uh, milligrams with uh, 1500 Dervalumab every, every four weeks that showed some, um, some benefit, but uh, there was not any added benefit to that. So they landed on what is called the stride regimen which is single T, so single trimalimab, single T regular interval D, uh, as in dervalimab. And this is S-T-R-I-D-E. I can see where the S and the T and the I and the R and the D are, but the E, there's nothing that matches E. It should be STRID, the STRID uh, dosing protocol. All right, back to this. So this is Himalaya, and this, these are child PUA patients, I should say, which is where almost all the, ben that's where the benefit is with the Tizobev. So there were some child pew B, uh, if the child pew score was 7, what we call B7 uh, in the serafinib study. So um, most of these folks are child pew A we're talking about here, and they all are in this study. So about 1,100 patients in Himalaya were randomized 1 to 1 to 1 to either standard serafinib, 400 BID, Dervalumab, or this STRID regimen of a single high dose of trimulimab, 300 milligrams, plus continuous Dervalumab. The primary efficacy... Uh, outcome here is first comparison of trimulimab plus dervalumab versus serafinib. Um, from an overall response rate, we see a much higher overall response rate with uh, trimulimab and dervalumab, 20% versus 5.5% with serafinib. No difference in progression-free survival. Median PFS is 3.8 versus 4.1, 4 versus 4. Hazard ratio is 0.9. Comfortable stride uh, straddles 1, which is interesting because both response rate and PFS, uh, progression-free survival, a progression event and a response are both using the same resist criteria. Okay? Now, of course, people could have an, an event in the progression-free survival analysis due to death, but you know your median progression-free survival is four months. Median overall survival is 16.4 months with trem dervalumab versus 13.8 with serafinib. So like four times, three times longer median overall survival. So most of those PFS events are progression events, not, uh, not deaths. So there's some discordance there using the same criteria, which is uh, puzzling, okay? So there, we do see a, a statistically significant improvement in overall survival with trembolimumab and dervalumab. That hazard ratio is 0.78, 95% comfortable, 0 0.66 to 0 0.92. And again, the median OS was 16.4 versus 13.8. And if you look at the Kaplan-Meier curve, you know, the, the Kaplan-Meier curves for, for trem-derv, trem trem-derv, and, uh, and serafinib overlap for the first four months, and they start to separate and about at two years um, is when you see even greater separation. So we do see maybe some, some long-lasting benefit of this, which is maybe a little hard to buy with one dose of tremolimumab, especially when we have um, no you know, difference in progression free survival. There appears to be more activity. We see more response, right? And it very well could be that you have a response. Because you had a response, then you 
you lose that response, and that would then become a progression event. I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, I think you know the, the Himalaya has has not been published yet. It was presented at ASCO GI um, uh, in uh, I think this this year in 2022, the first part of this calendar year. The key thing to look at when this is is published is what's the post protocol therapy. We know standard. You know we're now this is being compared to what's no longer the standard of care in serafinib. And that happens a lot as, as we have, as progress progresses, um, you know, studies are already designed in the standard of care. And that study goes out of date. So we do have to deal with this pretty commonly in oncology. Um, but the, the thing that I, you have to look at is, did the folks getting serafinib, did they have access to good second line therapy like uh, regorafinib, cabozantinib, remucirumab, atizolizumab plus BEV potentially? Do they have that option? Uh, especially when we don't see a PFS benefit um, and we see these, dis these discordant results, uh, much more likely to believe uh, that the finding is actually the true finding if, if everything kind of lines up and makes sense. Um, certainly there's a big gap between the progression-free survival. You know, if, if half the people are progressing at four months and they're living three or four times as long, what is happening in the interim becomes a huge factor in assessing overall survival because the drug's gonna be discontinued at, at progression, right? That's what typically happens in these protocols, and, and this is no different. Um, the protocol did say that, uh, you know, on the, you know, treating physician's discretion, you could continue some drugs post-protocol, but that all needs to be uh, reviewed in the publication, which you don't have yet. So kind of the take-home message now, you know, it's, I think it's, you know, it's FDA approved. It's going to be an option for those. Um, whether it is better than the tizolizumab plus BEV is, is, is impossible to say. Um, the other interesting question would be how much, how many dollars is it going to be for one dose of tremolimumab? Okay, but uh, a new agent added to this, um, and, um, you know, they, they did look at a lower dose tremolimumab plus dervimab, and they didn't see extra efficacy. Um, so, uh, and certainly a one-time dose should help minimize the, the toxicity. Um, it is plausible. We, we, you know, we do see, uh, responses even after you stop immune checkpoint inhibitors, uh, and those responses can happen later. So, uh, I suppose it's possible that a single dose does actually lead to this meaningful improvement in overall survival compared to a substandard of care, but, you know, want to see the publication before I, I weigh in fully, I suppose. All right. So that is tremolimumab. Uh, four days later, the FDA approved teclistamab, a uh, brand name Tecvaly. Um, and this, a lot of people are excited about this drug. It seems to be an, uh, an exciting drug. Uh, so this is an accelerated approval for teclistamab for relapse refractory multi-myeloma in patients who have received at least four lines of prior treatment, including uh, a proteasome inhibitor, an imid, and an anti-CD38 agent like uh, daratumumab. So this is a bispecific T-cell engager. Um, so you probably heard me do this before if you're a regular listener. If you stand um, if you stand up straight and stick your arms up, kind of a Y shape, think of yourself as a monoclonal antibody. Uh, the way these bispecific T-cell engagers are is now imagine uh, Halloween. So imagine cutting off, you know, somebody cuts off your right hand and your left hand and then re-ligates them. Okay. And uh, in this case, your left hand is going to bind to BCMA, B-cell maturation antigen, which is expressed on our myeloma cells, or the, the patient's myeloma cells, and many mature B-cells. 
and then the right hand is going to bind to CD3, which is part of the T-cell receptor. So it's a little bit like a, a matchmaker of, uh, of uh, whatever the target cell death is. You're going to bring the T-cells and effector T-cells in close proximity at the T-cell receptor to, uh, to something that then will activate the T-cell where it exerts its effector functions, and in this case, kills anything expressing BCMA, which is going to be myeloma cells and could be uh, some healthy B cells as well. Uh, so anyway, this is teclistamab. We have uh, three other agents approved that target uh, BCMA. We have belantamab bedotin, uh, hurts the eyes, uh, and then we got two CAR-T products, Idacel and Siltacel, that target um, BCMA. There are boxed warnings for cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity, including ICANS, which is immune effector cell-associated neurotoxicity syndrome. There is a REMS program because of this. Um, the prescriber needs to be certified with the program. Uh, prescriber has to counsel a patient on the side effects and give a wallet card. Uh, the dispensing pharmacy or healthcare system has to be certified as well. And uh, then you have to uh, hope people, whoever sells the drug has to verify that you uh, are certified to, uh, to prescribe and, and give this drug. And this approval is based on Majestic One which is M-A-G-E-S, and capital T, capital E, tap, capital C, dash one. So Majestic One, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, a few months ago in August of this year. Uh, interestingly, the, uh, we'll, we'll wait, we'll talk about the study a little bit. There's a whole lot of just logistic stuff to go over with. I, I've gone over just in brief the REMS program. The dosing of this agent is subcutaneous, uh, and there is a step up approach to this. It's not a ramp up like you might say with Veniclax. They call it a step up. All right? So step up dose number one is on day one. It's 0 0.06 milligrams per kilogram. And then on day four, you have a five-fold increase from 0.06 to 0.3 mg per kg. And then on day seven, you do another five-fold increase from 0.3 to 1.5 mg per kg. And that is then... Uh, step up dose number three, and then every day after that, not every day, sorry, every week after that, you do again 1.5 mix per cake. So you start at tiny dose, multiply by five, and then multiply by five, and you do that within a week, if all goes well. Now, the, the label does allow you to delay the, the, um, that the day four and day seven dose. Could be two to four days later, or up to even a week later, for those step-up doses if you have to delay to allow side effects to resolve and resolution of toxicity. Patients do need to be hospitalized for 48 hours after these step-up doses to observe for CRS and, and ICANS. There are pre-treatments required for the first three doses and they should be given one to three hours before the, uh, the sub-Q injection of teclistamab, not your typical 30 minutes we think about for, for pre-meds. This is one to three hours beforehand. Dex, 16 milligrams, they say. Diphenhydramine, 50 milligrams. And acetaminophen, 650 to 1,000 milligrams with the first three doses. In subsequent doses, after you get to that treatment dose every week, uh, these pre-meds may be required, uh, specifically for those who have to repeat the step up or patients who had um, cytokine release syndrome with prior doses. So let's say you have somebody who they, they, they step up to uh, step up dose two, then they go to step up dose three, and they have really bad cytokine release syndrome or something, and you have to then delay for a long period of time, say more than, um, you know, if, you, if you're going more than, uh, more than 28 days, then you have to go back down a dose level uh, to, to step up. So there is, and there's, it's a pretty complicated table that's not so easy. 
to, to look through that it's available in the PI. Uh, we also should, quote, consider herpes zoster prophylaxis in these patients. There were reports of reactivation or new viral infections, including herpes zoster, hepatitis B, etc. cetera. Uh, there are, um, you know, uh, warnings and precautions for cytokine release syndrome, uh, as I mentioned, the neurotoxicity and the ICANs infections, hemorrhage. Um, so there are there are quite a few concerns here with this drug. Pretty toxic drug. From a uh, preparation admin standpoint, it is a ready-to-use solution. There's no uh, there's no reconstitution dilution. Um, there are two vial sizes, a ten, or two vial strengths, I should say, concentrations, a 10 milligram per mil and a 90 milligram per mil. And there are doses for the step up one dose, there are, sorry, tables for the step up one dose, step up two dose, and then the treatment dose, the step up three dose um, in the PI that are really helpful. And I just, for, for the pharmacy administrators here, uh, they, they really spell this out. There's, uh, the doses are, are kind of uh, based on, they're weight-based, and they do all the calculations. So if you're between the patient between 100 and 109 kilograms, that's one vial, 153 milligrams, 1.7 mils, okay? And the PI says, uh, you know, two mil max sub-Q administration. So anything more than that, you have to, to, to do two inject, injections. Now, if you are um, 110 to 119 kilograms, um, again, you go from 109 to 110. Now the, the label is you need 171 milligrams, 1.9 mil. That's two vials. So you just go up like one milligram. That's the threshold for doing two vials. And the cost associated with this, I'm sure, are going to have some folks asking, should we cap the dose for these folks uh, that are, are that uh, heavy of 110 kilograms and above? Don't know any of the, anything about the dosing and effectiveness and obesity and if that would be warranted. Um, Going back to some of these uh, uh, toxicities, um, I mentioned some of them before, and uh, so the, the cytokine release syndrome, 42% of patients had cytokine release syndrome after step up dose one, 35% um, after step up dose two, which is lower, and then 24% after step up dose three. Now those numbers are lower, uh, and there are probably some percentage of patients who don't go on to step up dose two, so you might expect them to be lower. The good news is if you get through the, those first three doses and you get to the treatment dose um, without any cytokine release syndrome, uh, less than 3% of patients had a, a new onset cytokine release syndrome after those first three doses. And there are dose adjustments for cytokine release syndrome, the neurotoxicity, infections, and hematologic toxicities as well. Uh, neurologic toxicity occurred in 57%. Uh, and there's a warning in there that patients should not drive um, with for 40 hours or, or operate heavy. It doesn't say operate heavy machinery, but that's what I think of um, immediately after the dose because of a decreased level of consciousness. Um, hepatotoxicity, there's a warning statement about that. Infections, uh, we are supposed to monitor immunoglobulin levels. 11% uh, of patients in uh, Majestic 1 had hypogammaglobinemia. Uh, Grade three or four neutropenia occurred in 56% of patients. Only 3% had febrile neutropenia. They do say to, to give prophylactic, quote, antimicrobials per local standards. The same would go for, for growth factor use as well. Uh, and I do want to point out, um, and, and the label explicitly states this, that the cytokine release syndrome is going to suppress cytochrome P450 metabolism. Anything, any widespread inflammatory event is going to suppress metabolism of drugs. And they say to really avoid using sensitive substrate, so like anticoagulants, things like that, uh, opioids that are metabolized by uh, the liver such as, as oxycodone because you will see higher levels uh, of those uh, 
if you have cytokine release syndrome secondary to delayed uh, and reduced metabolism. And that that is going to be you know for the first week after um, uh, through the initiation period up to the the whole week after the first treatment dose. So really, the first two weeks of treatment, if all goes well, is when you would expect decreased metabolism of any drugs metabolized by the liver. Now, back to Majestic One, the basis for the approval. This was, there are about 180 people, I want to say, 160 people in this study. There was a phase one and a phase two. Um, the publication talks about 125 in phase two. The PI says there are 110 in the efficacy population. Um, they, they did have to have at least three lines of prior treatment. And that inclusion criterion is different than the approval criterion, which is after four lines of treatment. And that seems to be from the fact that 78% of patients did have at least four or more lines of treatment. Um, most of the patients, 81% uh, had an auto transplant. Median age was 66. The range was 33 to 82. Not heard of a 33-year-old with myeloma. Um, overall response rate was 66, 68%, 66-68%, 31% complete response rate, which is really surprising. Uh, for a new drug, you, it, it's a, it, it's somewhat a testament to how effective some of these new drugs are is, you know, in the days of just cytotoxic chemo, you would be excited with a 30% or 20% response rate in somebody this heavily refractory. To see a, a response rate north of 60%, uh, now we're not maybe that surprised by with what we've seen with CAR-T treatment and stuff like that. But to see such a high complete response rate, and that's complete response and complete response with incomplete count recovery. 31% tells you this drug certainly has a very good activity and pretty durable activity as well. As well, And these response rates are in the same ballpark as what we see with our, our CAR-T products. But unlike CAR-T products, uh, they don't require lymphocyte-depleting chemotherapy like you would with CAR-T. You don't require waiting for the drug to come back from the manufacturer. So I think teclistamab is going to find a, a foothold uh, pretty easily to be used um, the REMS requirements are, are burdensome, but not more burdensome, I think, than, than CAR-T uh, products. So folks who are familiar with CAR-T, uh, I think, are going to be uh, really excited uh, using this in their myeloma patients. Uh, it does have the, the toxicities that I mentioned to worry about, but uh, it also has uh, very good activity as well in, uh, in a pretty refractory, uh, very refractory treatment population of uh, folks with multiple myeloma. So those are the T-drugs that are new, trimalimumab and teclistamab. There's always new stuff here in oncology. Makes it fun. All right. Well, thank you for listening. I hope you all have a wonderful All Hallows' Eve and Halloween if you, if you celebrate um, or celebrate HID, if you're listening to this after the 31st. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNip, and you can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at UncleFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.